It was a great time, and uh, it is a privilege to with such uh, receptive folks. Uh, Brother Chuck and I have a high view of Scripture. So do you. That's why we teach it. We, we're not very creative, as you could tell. We, do, we don't aim to be. We just like to look to the text, talk about it, and there's power in it to change lives. And we've been doing this for just about 20 years. We'll keep doing it till we get it right. But uh, it's a great, great privilege, and uh, we don't take it lightly, I'll tell you that, to, to be able to stand in front of you and impart uh, God's truths. And we're going to do that today a little bit more. We started Philippians last week. We just did an intro and looked at the first half of verse 1. And <laughs> I guarantee we'll finish verse 1 today. <laughs> Can't promise too much more. Uh, Paul wrote this from prison in Rome. Just to refresh your memory, he wrote it to people at a place called Philippi. So it got the name Philippians. Philippi would be in modern day Greece. This is called an epistle, which is another word for letter. It's a letter. And so uh, here's what we read last week, verse 1, chapter 1. Paul and Timothy, I mentioned to you, I don't think that means co-authorship. It just means they had a close tie. Paul wrote this, not Timothy. But Paul, the senior statesman, mentored Timothy, the younger minister. And they did everything together. And this is Paul's way of saying to the Philippians and others, Timothy's a good man. I put my arm around him, so should you. Paul and Timothy, they call themselves bond servants. You wouldn't think that's a, a term you would be proud of, but they were because they were bond servants of Christ Jesus. That's about the highest position we could be promoted to, to be a servant of Christ. And I mentioned to you last week that in ancient letter writing, the forms are a little different than modern letter writing. They had three elements. One, right up front, the author was identified. See, we sign off on our letters at the end. But in ancient days, they identify themselves right at the beginning. So you have element one, Paul and Timothy. They wrote it. The second element is, are the recipients. And you'll see it here, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. Then the third element, which we'll get to a little later, a little word of greeting. That's what happens. So we find out that Paul is writing this to all the saints in Christ Jesus. Now that word saints can trip you up a little bit. You can misunderstand it. Uh, certain religious bodies uh, think sainthood is a, uh, an honor to be conferred on a man or a woman by other men and women. Um, I don't think that's what the Bible means when it says saint. This is a designation not by uh, a body of men or women. This is a designation by God himself with reference to those whom he has saved. When you accept Jesus as Savior, uh, he designates you as a saint. It means a separated one. It doesn't mean a perfect one. It means a separated or holy one. As he is holy, we are meant to be holy. And, you know, we spend a lot of time trying to talk God out of that. We say, oh, God, I'm, I'm not very saintly. Well, try as you may, you will not succeed if you're a Christian in talking God out of it. He he sees you to be a saint as a, as a separated one. This is not subject to an ecclesiastical body, a religious committee. This is God himself pronouncing that designation on you. You know what our battle is? Those of us who are saints, living consistent with it. 
Now, sainthood is not a matter of perfectionism. It's a matter of position. So don't miss that. Nobody's a saint in the sense of being sinlessly perfect. Surely not anyone here. It's a function of our position in Christ. Once we are in Christ, uh, he, as our Savior and Lord, then he designates us to be a saint or a holy one. And our, our challenge is to live up to it. So we don't want to live a certain way so as to win God's favor so that he considers us saints. Oh, no, it's the opposite. Because he considers us saints already, we want to live up to it. And so the big battle in the Christian life is simply being who God already calls us to be, his set-apart ones. And in this day and age, uh, we would do well to take this more seriously because there's opportunity to fall into sin all around us. Things seem to be getting crazier. Uh, We live in a bad neighborhood. It's called the world. (laughs) And uh, so many saints are, are falling into sin and forfeiting, not salvation. Oh, no. You know, once Jesus has affixed his love on you, he doesn't unaffix it. It's just the way, it's just not the way he is. And so uh, we're secure in Christ, but we can forfeit all kinds of blessing, opportunity, and all the rest. And so um, I hope you have a plan for uh, avoiding unsaintly behavior. Not to win God's favor or earn salvation, but because you already are saved. So I've, I've revealed to you uh, some plans that I've worked out in times past, and I'm kind of up in the stakes because I don't trust myself. For instance, um, I always let my wife know where I am. So when I get to church, I call her, and when I'm leaving the church to go home, I call her. She does the same. Um, I have a phone app called Find a Friend. She's my only friend on it. So if she wants to know where I am, she can push that button, figure it out. I can do the same. In the last class, one of the men said there's an even better app called Life 360. Anyone know about this? Yeah, you know about it? You like it? Yeah, exactly. If if there's an accident or anything like that, apparently you, you know where they are. So... That's a good use of technology, it seems to me. Life 360. I'm going to look into it. It looks like here look, another class member is recommending it. It's a free thing, isn't it? What could be bad? So, um, and the reason is not because I or anyone involved in this is so spiritual. It's the opposite. I know I have the designation of saint, but I also know I, I have the inclination to behave in an unsaintly manner. People... As committed to the Lord, as mature in Christ, as I like to think I am, have fallen. I can too. I have the same inclination to sin in me that others who have given into it do. And so uh, I know I'll not lose my salvation. It's not that kind of fear. I just don't want to bring shame on myself, my family my church, my Lord, and I think I have the capacity to. And, and you know, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And the flesh doesn't get stronger as you get older. Let me tell you that, folks. It remains just as weak as possible. So I've told you certain things. I, I try to avoid frontal hugs with women. 
Sometimes you can't avoid it, man. They just attack you. <laughs> but I uh, try to do, do, you know, a pastoral um, side hug kind of a thing. I told you I don't pull a woman in, nothing like that. The open hand, just this kind of deal. I told you I don't ride in a car with uh, a woman other than my wife. I don't, I, I'm not spiritual. I don't trust myself. I don't trust myself. Um, you know, when I hear a guy say, that, that thing, would, couldn't, that'll never happen with me. That gets me nervous. Could I tell you the formula for disaster for saints? It's this. Desire plus opportunity equals disaster. The desire to pleasure ourselves sinfully is there where we're born in sin. Couple that with the opportunity, you're on the way to disaster. So I try to deal with the desire in various ways, I'll tell you. But it's easier to deal with the opportunity. That's why I don't get in a car with somebody. I don't counsel with um, a lady alone in my office. In fact, lately, I don't counsel with anyone in my office. I meet in the lobby. I don't trust me. I don't trust the people I'm counseling with. Forgive me. uh, So I try to do it at least where we can be seen at all times. (laughs) Uh, I don't have uh, secret codes for any of my computers that I don't share with my wife or kids. Uh, Men, women, but men in particular, if you're not granting your wife access to your phone and computer, why not? You see, I'm not trying to hide anything. Well, I believe you, but you're inviting that possibility. Don't do it. Uh, I don't have my computer at home set up in a private place. No, my wife can pass by and see what's on the monitor at any particular time. (sighs) Don't have games on the computer. I have every one of these, uh, what do they call them? Screening devices. What do you say? Oh, oh, thanks. A spyware or something like that. Everyone you can think of because I don't trust me. What if I come upon a site? I'm not even looking for it, but I know it's there. At a weaker moment, I may go back to it. Internet pornography is very addicting. And uh, people better than me have fallen into it. I'm just one step away. I'm no better than anyone. You say, wait a second, aren't you a saved believer? Hang on. You're darn tootin' I am. I've been saved from the penalty of my sin. Done deal but I have not yet been saved from the presence of sin. That's yet to happen. So I'm a guy who's struggling like Paul. I have a flesh versus spirit battle. So do you. Hasn't Christ made a difference? Yes, he has. He added his very spirit into my life. So now I'm not just flesh. I'm flesh and spirit, but I can still tie into the flesh. So I want to be careful about it because I don't trust myself. And I have found this. My susceptibility to want to please myself outside of God's will is enhanced when I'm tired or hungry or angry or stressed out. Interesting. It's like your flesh says to you, hey, Stuart, you deserve a break today. And that's when you're susceptible. So I'll tell you what I do. 
I try to provide for rest. I try to manage the load uh, so that I don't become unduly stressed out. If I'm hungry, I deal with it by eating. (laughs) And if I'm angry, I try to pray through it. Because those increase the susceptibility factors uh, of giving in to temptation. I used to think the virtuous thing for a minister was to um, minister to the point of exhaustion. Say yes to everything, go to everything, be out every night of the week. Now I think that's the opposite of virtue. First of all, no one's that important. You don't have to be doing all that. And second... If you're expending yourself to the point of exhaustion and you're overstressed, you're going to be much more prone. You get an anger response. You say, every one of those people wants something from me, but what about my needs? And then you start justifying meeting those needs. That's kind of how it happens. There's no difference between me and others in the ministry who've fallen into sin. No difference, except maybe. I know I have the capacity to do it and prepare for, for, for not doing it. And others I notice who have fallen into sin have not had sufficient insights into their sin nature and don't plan accordingly. So look, if we get too close to the line that we're not supposed to cross over and we're hungry or tired or stressed or something, we're much more prone to go over the line. So I draw the line in the sand way back here way back here um i don't i don't go to certain movies i'm not some legalistic super spiritual guy i'm the opposite i'm i i I don't trust myself i can't afford to see certain things it leaves a certain impression on my mind and may act on it um i'm in an accountability situation with as i say with my wife i don't do any overnights that she doesn't know about or anything like that. No secret bank accounts. No, no nothing like that. And it's not because I must emphasize this. I have arrived and I'm spiritual. Uh, it's the very opposite. It's the opposite. Now you say, good night, you're a minister. You're supposed to have this together. I have the issue of the penalty of my sin is done. Jesus died for it. The issue of the presence of my sin is not yet done. It will be one day. That's what's called heaven. Until then, it wages war in my members. And I don't want to feed it. I want to starve it. So therefore, I have to be careful. Why? Because Jesus said I'm a saint. And that motivates me to live like it. He doesn't say live a certain way so you can earn sainthood. That's not a good motivation. That's demotivation. He doesn't say that. He said, I've already designated. I've granted you sainthood. Just live up to your high calling. Don't live below it. That's an entirely different motivation entirely. So in this day and age when maybe the end is drawing near, I don't know. I'm no date setter, but boy, things are happening. Let's not be disqualified from the race. Uh, Again, Not that we're disqualified from the love of God or the salvation we've been granted in Christ Jesus. But you can sure lose your platform of ministry, your credibility. 
you can sure bring disruption and shame upon your family. And, you know, all, all of these kinds of things. Some of you have had that experience. Thank God you're here. Thank God you're in Christ. Thank God you're forgiven. Thank God you're saved. I got all that. Uh, I mean, no harm to anybody else, but um, we really, 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 really to, uh, up the step. You know what we've done in the church in the last several years? Uh, as a church growth strategy, uh, we've uh, uplifted the concept of relevance as over against holiness. So God does not uh, say, uh, I designate you relevant. <laughs> I, he says, I designate you separate. I mean, we've missed that. And so we have uh, compromised our separateness by seeking to become relevant. So we, we've succeeded at it. And we're so relevant now, you can't tell the difference between us and unsaved people. <laughs> we relate. We dress the same. We go to the same movies. We engage in the same entertainment stuff. We drink the same stuff. We smoke the same stuff. And we wonder why they're not attracted to our lifestyle. What do you mean? Our lifestyle looks like their lifestyle. <laughs> we're not separate. We're not, we're not distinguishable. So I read a text like this and I say, good night. Why are we trying to fit in and be relevant when God says, I called you to be separate? <laughs> good night. It's the Old Testament concept. We're not supposed to be like all the other nations, but we're really trying desperately to be like all the other nations. It's not really working in terms of church growth, and it's not really helping us. And what's happened is the world has been more influence on us than we've been on the world. So I've just decided not to be a legalist by no means. I've just decided, you know, I, I'm going to try to live up to my calling as a saint. And I'm just not going to try to fit in by engaging in, in certain stuff that may not be blatantly sinful. I don't mean that, but... You know, the Bible says avoid the appearance of evil. If I could just encourage you then, isn't it great if you're a Christian that Almighty God considers us to be saints? It's really great. Just live up to it. My wife, when she was a little girl, when she would be sent off to school every day, her dad would say to her, remember who you are. Remember who you are. I think our Heavenly Father is essentially saying something like that to us. Remember who you are. You're a saint. We might add, remember whose you are. You're mine. Honor me. Honor me. So uh, in addressing the saints, he's not addressing those designated. So again, by an ecclesiastical body of fellow sinners, <laughs> he's addressing those who've been designated as such by Almighty God. And again, this has nothing to do with being perfect. It has to do with position. To all the saints in Christ Jesus... And then it says, who are in Philippi, which tells me every Christian has two addresses. One is spiritual. One is physical. Their spiritual address is this, in Christ Jesus. Their physical address is this, in Philippi. Can you see it? For us, it would say, in Christ Jesus, that's our spiritual address. In Houston, that's our physical address. That's true of every believer. Now, here's the trouble we get into. We overemphasize all the things associated with our physical address, and that distracts us from our spiritual address. For instance, 
All the stuff associated with my physical reality are things like illness, unemployment, uh, marital problems, cancer, grief, loss of a loved one. All those things are part and parcel of what is true of my physical location. Those are realities. And those realities cause pain and all the rest. But we, what we want to try to do is let our spiritual address have more impact on our physical address than the other way around. I may be grieving the loss of a loved one. I may have received a cancer diagnosis. I may have received uh, an unemployment notice. I may have marital problems. I may have wayward children. All, all the stuff of life. I got that. But I'm also in Christ Jesus. As a grieving widow, that's a reality. But I'm in Christ Jesus. As someone looking for a job, that's a reality. But I'm in Christ Jesus. As someone whose kids are not living the way they ought to, that hurts. But I'm in Christ Jesus. As someone who just received a bad word from a doctor, oh my goodness, that hurts. But I'm in Christ Jesus. I have to keep bringing the reality of my spiritual address to bear on the reality of my physical address and not the other way around. And because, it's because none of the things which are part and parcel of my physical location are going to last. Nothing. But everything about my spiritual location will. I am not going to be in Houston and for all that means, all that entails eternally. But I am going to be in Christ Jesus eternally. So, so what's true in the present, I'm in Christ Jesus. That's the only thing that continues on into eternity. I'll always be in Christ Jesus. But all these other things are not going to, are, are not going to be reality. I didn't say we should walk around like we don't feel pain and hurt and grief and all. I didn't say that. I just said just don't let, get swallowed up by it. Get swallowed up by your in Christness, and not the other stuff. So he's writing to saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, and he includes people called overseers and deacons. That's very interesting, and it says a lot. Those are offices in a local church, which tells me, even from the first century, God's primary means for embracing the world is through the proliferation of local churches. Did you know that? Local churches. That's God's strategy for the world. So in case you get to the point where you say, I'm tired of the local church, I don't have to go there to hear messages. I can get it online, and I don't even like the music the way it is, and also it's too cold. I got you, but you're missing the point. God's means by which he gets the job done is through the local church. I got to tell you something. I don't really care who's coming or anything. I'm going. Because everything about the New Testament has to do with the healthfulness of the local church. Have you heard the term parachurch? Like parallel, two lines that are side by side. Parachurch is a group, an organization that comes alongside the church to do a particular ministry. Uh, I've determined, maybe incorrectly, you can tell me, that God raises up through history certain parachurch movements to correct the local church. Because it's not doing what it's supposed to do. But then when the local church gets with the program, 
the parachurch loses its purpose. And as a result, they come and go. But the church is always there. The local church existed in the first century and exists today. We're in one right here. I belonged to a parrot church group called the Navigators when I was a younger Christian, super group. And the purpose of that group was not just to make converts, but disciples. And the leader of the group noticed the local church is not doing it. It's real interested in saving souls, but then it doesn't do a thing to mature the believer. So this organization developed around that interest, maturing believers, really, really good. But then the local churches started to get with the program and started to come up with ways to mature the saint. And now I believe groups like that, I I don't think uh, their divinely intended purpose is what it used to be. And and you see parachurch groups, their lifespan usually is the life of its leader. And then usually by the next generation, they pass out of existence. So it's like God raises up a very charismatic, dynamic leader. You know, I think of Bill Bright, Campus Crusade, and I think of, uh, well, Lauren Sandy with the Navigators. You know, it's groups like that. And then when the leader passes away, the group has life, but it's not quite the same anymore because the local church has gotten the message. My point in all that to say is if you're questioning your investment in the local church, God isn't. In fact, he has officers in it to make sure it's organized. So that's what the local church is. It's a group of called out ones who are called in to grow together and worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not just an organism, it's an organization. And as part of the organization, there are two positions in it. uh, And one is called overseer and the other is deacon. And there it is right there. They're not the same. Uh, So the word overseer, what is that? It's a very interesting word. Uh, It's a compound word, epi which means over, scopus, episcopus, like, uh, like episcopal. Epis- it means someone who looks over or oversees the church. The two purposes of an overseer in the church are to nourish it and protect it. That's the, the two purposes of an overseer, to, oversee, to, to nourish the church and to protect it. That's a different function than that given to deacons. First, let me tell you, in no case... In the New Testament is the term overseer used in the singular form. It's always plural. So in this case, listen to the Greek word, episkopoi. The ending is O-I. That's always plural in Greek. Singular, episkopas. This says episkopoi. Why? It's not biblical for there to be in any local church a one-man show. Not biblical. Why? Because no man got it all together. You say, wait a second, we got a one-man show. No, we don't. We have one man as the senior pastor. Perfectly biblical position. Called, equipped, blessed of God. But that one man doesn't operate in isolation. There are other overseers in this church who operate absolutely in submission to the senior pastor out of respect to him, but as part of his ministry team. Uh, So, for instance, I bring this up because in the last class, a lot of people didn't know about this. Do you know we have something here called an executive staff? It's not the best name in the world, but that's that's what it's called. And on the executive staff are 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 some of the pastors in the church because they're overseers. Their job is to nourish the flock and protect it, primarily against false teaching and that kind of stuff. Not an antagonism to the senior pastor. Nobody is saying that. Absolutely not. 
but to complement his work because he operates as you, you say, well, no, our pastor, he, he's a lone ranger. No, he's not. We meet every week and we discuss things. And if we meet in his absence, we do not make any decisions of significance apart from him. We just don't do that. That's not the way it works. And, and, and so on the, on the executive staff are different ministers in the church. And the beauty of it is there's some old ones and some young ones. <laughs> so you can get some good representation here. And it keeps, keeps, we hope it keeps harmony in the body so you don't get older guys versus younger guys. No, no, that's not the way it works. We work together as overseers for the, for the good of the church under the authority of the senior pastor of, uh, of, of the church. Uh, furthermore, our pastor uh, all, uh, consults not only the exec- executive staff, but then the rest of the staff. We have many pastors here. Really good. And then, in addition, he consults, as he ought to, the deacons. So that's the second group. Diakonoi. Same Greek ending. O-I. Not diakonos. One. Diakonoi. Plural. <laughs> More than one. But what are the deacons? Did you know the term deacon is not a biblical term? It's not religious? It's secular. It was, it's a company term. <laughs> it's a term of management. In Roman, Greek and Roman secular society, a deacon is someone who at the behest, let's say, of the government would simply do certain serving tasks on behalf of the population, like distributing food to the needy. The church embraced that term, and it depicts the role of deacons in a church. They operate in a not an insignificant way, but in a, subsidi- a subordinate way to the overseers, and their job is to carry out acts of service on behalf of the church. Their primary role is not nourishment and theological protection of the flock. That's the role of overseers, who, in theory, are supposed to be called, equipped, and trained, and all the rest. Sometimes they're not, but they're supposed to be. The deacons, on the other hand, are not required to possess the same kind of calling and training. They're required to possess a servant heart. Now, what happens in some Baptist churches is that this gets reversed, and the deacons think they're the overseers. And that's called an unbiblical, unhealthy church that you do not want to be a member of. That's not the way it works. The deacons are not supposed to call the shots. Listen, I I don't remember how many deacons we have here. We've got a lot of deacons, and there's always room for more qualified deacons in this particular church. But I happen to know this. Every man who's a candidate to be part of the deacon body is fully informed of what his role will be. Uh, the implication being, can you accept this? You're not insignificant, but let's have our place. Now, here's, here's the beauty. Uh, sometimes people point out the flaws of Sagemont Church. And as one of the ministers, I hear it a lot. And maybe they're right. But you're missing the point. What about the strengths of Sagemont Church? Now, here's one of the strengths. Better coordination and harmony between staff, overseers, and deacons than I've seen in any church I've ever been familiar with. We are not adversaries. We do not compete. We are friends. We respect one another. We pray for one another. We have lunch together. The deacons, as a staff member, I can tell you, are our number one supporters. They hold our hands up. When we get together, whether it be at a deacon meeting or something like that, it's not the staff on one side and the deacons on the other. We're we're like indistinguishable from one another in terms of relationship. It's a love relationship. I credit the pastor with that that kind of harmony because he insists on it. He let a lot of things go, but not disharmony. 
That's a strength of Sagemont Church. We do not have political infighting around here, for crying out loud. When there's a deacon's function, the staff is invited to it, we are not anticipating heavy, awkward, are you kidding me? These are great times together. Of course, sometimes we're guys and we're stupid, and, and you know, guys do guy stuff and, and start horsing around with one another and all this, a lot of stuff that women don't find even remotely to be funny. I'm told this. But that's how guys relate to one another. But anyway, it's a beautiful working relationship. That is a strength of Sagemont. We have flaws. I got all that. But well, we also have strengths, and to me, this is one of the strengths. We get together well. We, we, we don't have division uh, here. Anyway, those are two of the offices of the, of the local church. And then uh, Paul goes on to say um, here in verse 2. Now, here's the greeting. So first part, he introduced himself as author. Second part, to the recipients. And then here's the third ingredient. Here's the greeting. Does your Bible read this way? Grace to you and peace. Well, do you have it in that order? Does grace come first? Okay, good. Is that arbitrary or there's something to that? Is it possible to reverse the order and say peace to you and grace? Is that, just, is that pretty much the same thing or is that different? What are your thoughts on that? Anyone have any thoughts on that? Why does it say grace for yeah, Maureen? And then we'll go to Richard. Richard, Maureen first, because she came to our party last night. <laughs> yes, ma'am. That is exactly right. Rich, were you going to say something like that? Maureen said, in case you didn't hear, without grace, God's grace, there can be no peace. That's exactly right. In no New Testament epistle will you see this order reversed. Nowhere. It's always this way. Grace has to come first. Now, what the world is doing, just to simplify things, is the opposite. It's reversing it. And it's just saying, let's give peace a chance. You know, you see the bumper stickers. Visualize world peace. You ever see that? Is this bad of me? I feel like just running my car right into that bumper. (laughs) That's not a very peaceful thing at all. You can visualize world peace. You can spell it in creative ways. You can have conferences about it. You can smoke pot and sing kumbaya all you want. And you are filled with hostilities first towards God. Did you know that? They started when you were born. You were born in a hostile relationship with God. You were conceived in sin, and he never touched sin. You're at odds with God right from day one. And your hostility towards God carries over in that you're hostile towards people. You're not given to harmony and peace and all that kind of stuff. You're given to narcissistic, self-centered, I want what I want when I want it. And the only reason I hang out with people is so that they would meet my needs. Come on, be honest. And then your hostilities towards God not only carries over towards your hostilities and lack of peace with people, you don't have peace within. You're a mess within and you know it. You're just an out-of-harmony, disassembled conglomeration of a bunch of conflicting nonsense on the inside, and you just pretty it up with makeup and haircuts. (laughs) But you'd be a mess on the inside. You're filled with all kinds of stuff, and you can't figure it out and unravel, and and that's the way. And not only that, then when you're part of a body, a political entity like a country, you're very, very prone to express all your irritability and hostility to the other nations of the world. You are, you're, a, you're at war with God. You're at war with 
yourself. You're at war with those around you, and you're ready to go to war with any other nation that looks at you the wrong way. That's who you are. Ain't that a pretty picture? And so the world is saying, but we can just love, let's just love one another. You know, give the, the this will do it. This will do it. <clears throat> no, it won't. We can't be at peace with God unless he gives us the gracious way by which peace can be established. That's through faith in Jesus. The prince of peace has to come first. When you're at peace with God, you come to be at greater peace within. You cease to be this messed up conglomeration of disparate, conflicting emotions and behaviors and thoughts and who am I and I don't know why I'm here. You start getting some orderliness on the inside. And because you're at peace with God, you have peace within. Because you have peace within, you have a higher probability of being in peaceful relationships with those around you. You're not nearly as irritable and obnoxious as you used to be. You still are, but not quite as much. There are checks in your spirit. There's restraints, the likes of which you never experienced before. You used to be prone to give people a piece of your mind at the drop of a hat or clench your fist and apply it to somebody's jaw. But now there's something in you that says to you, no, that's not the way to do it. Uh, That's called God's presence in your life. That's the Holy Spirit. And one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit is peace. Peace. So Paul is not, this is not just wishful thinking from Paul. This is a theological statement. Grace, God's grace, is what has given you, saints in Christ Jesus who live in Philippi, peace with God and with one another. That's what he says. Grace to you and peace. From whom? Well, it says right there. From God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Is someone missing? You got the Father and you got the Son. Anyone missing in that formula? Holy Spirit. Man, that's always the way it is. He does not call attention to himself. Did you know that? See, in the Trinity, one God, there's different functionality. But, but there's no difference in essence. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are all God. Now, if you're going to ask me to explain this to you, I'll save you time. I don't have a clue how to explain it. But I don't have any problem accepting it. Why is it such a problem to figure out that God, who is one, has chosen to manifest himself in three persons? I mean, God, by definition, can do anything he wants to do. He's not waiting for me to comprehend it. I don't comprehend it. I just believe it. So you have God the Father, and he, he, uh, he initiates. And then you have uh, God the Son, and he mediates. And then, you have, uh, and then you have God the Holy Spirit, and he kind of regenerates. But one of the Holy Spirit's mission is to call attention to the Father and the Son, and he doesn't like to call attention to himself, which is why in certain churches, when, when they're so lathered up about the Holy Spirit and so-called gifts and stuff, they're missing the whole point. They're making the Holy Spirit uncomfortable. He didn't like to be up front. The Holy Spirit, his, his job is to call attention to, to God the Son, God the Father. So you have God the Father, and his, he's very intentional about wanting us to have peace. But how do you get it? Well, it comes through the agency of God the Son, Jesus. You, you cannot have the peace of God, though he intends for you to have it, if you don't have the Prince of Peace, Jesus the Son. That's the way it works. That's the way it works. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, look at this. Verse 3. 
Man, we're making progress. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. That is unbelievable to me. Every time Paul remembered these people, he was thankful. But I remember certain people, if I'm thankful about anything, I'm thankful that they're not around anymore. <laughs> Isn't that a bad thing? So, but how could he be so joyous and thankful? I mean, these people at Philippi, they're no diff- at Philippi, they're no different than us. The first century church had every struggle and and uh, stuff that we have today, how could he, upon remembrance of them, be thankful? I think it's because of their participation in the gospel. It's not that he had a problem-free experience with the Philippians. It's just that what loomed larger is their fellowship in the gospel. Uh, They participated in it by accepting it. They participated in it by sharing it. They participated in it by supporting Paul and his efforts to spread the gospel. And so I think that's what he means. When I, when I remember you, I, I'm so grateful to God for your participation in the gospel. In fact, uh, what he does about it in verse 4 is this, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. So whenever he thought about them, he prayed for them. That's what I'm getting. He remembered, that's a thought, so when a thought of them was conjured up in his mind, he translated it into prayer. So for him, his thoughts were his prayer prompters, which leads me to this. We'll end with this. Um, that's a good thing for us to do. What you're thinking, you ought to be praying. Because if you're only thinking about it, I'll tell you what's going to do to you. It's going to accumulate in you and make you depressed and anxious and unable to sleep, and eat, and unable to live with, and really rough to get along with. When you think about it, you build up all of your unexpressed thoughts, and they're in you. And someone says to you, hey, how you doing? And you say, get out of my face, I hate your guts. You say, where did all this stuff come from? But it's this reservoir of thoughts that you just let build up. So I was reading the news. That'll do it. I was reading the news, and it was a thing about Madonna and uh, some things that she said. <laughs> and then I left. I had to come to church. Well, you add that kind of stuff up, and then you're walking down the hall, and you run into one of yous. And you. And you go, oh, my goodness. I don't want to talk to that person. I don't want to talk to anyone. I hate people. You say, where's all this coming from? When it's this cumulative deal, you know what I should have done? Sometimes I do, but I don't always get it. But I should have said, oh, God, the only difference between Madonna and me is that I'm a sinner saved by grace. She's a sinner not yet saved by grace. But why not, God? I'm no better than she is. God, would you, as you intervened in my life, would you intervene in hers? Would you soften her hardened heart? Oh, God, she's in darkness. Would you bring her somehow into light? Would you send to her someone who she admires, someone who represents you well? Would you bring life circumstances into her life to stir her up, maybe make her miserable even with her present lifestyle? Please show her the uh, impoverishment of what she's seeking, all this pseudo-spirituality and crazy stuff. Oh, God, I pray she would come to find you. Lord, wouldn't it be great of her gifts? She's so talented. Wouldn't it be great if she would end up singing your praises while she still has a chance? 
I'll tell you, if I did that, I'd probably be better able to be cordial to you <laughs> if I ran into it. I'm, I'm not kidding about it. I'm telling you, part of the anxiety and depression part that we struggle with is this uh, buildup of all of these toxins from our physical address that we can't get rid of. So I came up with this idea. If I'm thinking it, I'm going to pray it because I got to get it out one way or the other. Because if you don't get it out, you know what happens to your thoughts? They get buried alive in you. And they come out in emotions and in physical ways and all the rest. And that's why God gives us the opportunity of prayer. So we can rid ourselves of all these concerns. And what an opportunity. Here's what I used to do. Periodically, every few weeks, I used to go to a park and have an extended time of prayer. Maybe three hours, something like that. That's a good thing to do. I'm not discouraging it. But what I'm finding now is more meaningful and helpful to me is not to do that, but just to pray all along. As I think it, I pray it. Doesn't the Bible say pray without ceasing? But I used to miss that. I said, well, no, God, how can that be? That means you're not supposed to sleep? That's not what it means. It means uh, let there be nothing between you and God so that at the drop of a hat you can pray. Let there be no obstacles between you and he so that you can be without ceasing, uh, readily able to approach the throne of grace. There's nothing between you and God. That's what it means, to pray without ceasing. So lately what I've tried to do is make my thought life my prayer prompter. I'm thinking it, therefore I'm going to pray. And especially if you're thinking the same thing two times, whoa, you better pray, for, pray about it. Otherwise, it's going to keep coming. And you know what? You can, you're going to be thinking about it. Here's what. You're going to go to sleep at 1030. You're dead tired. And you're going to, boom, you're out in 30 seconds. And you're waking up at 11. You're wide awake and ready to go. You know what you're thinking about? You're thinking about that thought the third time. A concern, a pain, a hurt, an offense. If you're thinking about it, try to pray about it the first time. Certainly the second. If it's getting to be the third, it's really, really getting buried in you. You know what happens if you bury thoughts and don't express them in prayer? You'll lose track of them. You'll forget where you put them. You won't be able to retrieve them in there. So when I see this, I say, Paul says, every time I think of y'all, I pray for y'all. Oh, good. He let his thought life breathe his prayer prompter. I recommend the same for us. Try it. It's a beautiful thing. Then you find your way through life and some knucklehead on the road does something that's bringing out the worst in you. And you're thinking all kinds of stuff. And then instead you say, oh, God, and you start praying. I got this uh, statement from the bank the other day. It was an overdraft letter. I owe 25 bucks. But here's the deal. No, I don't. <laughs> they messed up. Yes, it's possible. By their computer thing. I had documentation to hold in. I'm not paying the 25 bucks. So I'm thinking all kinds of stuff. And when you think stuff, it makes you feel stuff. So what I'm thinking is making me feel distressed, disgusted, angry, and I'm going to the bank. And I'm going to go speak to the bank person. And I'm going to probably change where I do my banking. You all can't get this together. You're offending me. I've been a long-term customer, and we manage our finances well, and I'm not giving you a dime, except maybe for a better computer. 
Well, all that is just stirring me up and all the rest and, and I'm missing life and peace and all the rest. You know what I should have done? I'm, I didn't do this, but I should have done this. I should have prayed and I should have said, God, I'm up against this doggone system and I can't break through it. But you can for me. It's not a big deal, but I would appreciate it if you would break through. Straighten them out so I don't have to. Secondly, I could have prayed, God, it looks like i got to take time out of my busy schedule to go see the bank guy, and I'm planning to go to give him a piece of my mind. Oh, but God, maybe you want me to go and share with him 40 words where I tell him the greatest thing that ever happened to me. You see what I mean? So I didn't let my thoughts lead me into prayer. I, I let it lead me into carnal, fleshly uh, Stuff robbed me of peace, made me hard to live with. I probably drove too fast on the road, all this other kind of stuff. Uh, quenches the spirit, see. So I'm trying this out. I have been for some time. I don't have victory in this area, but I have more victory than I, than I, ever, I ever had. I challenge you to do it. If you're thinking about it, pray about it. Lord Jesus, here's what we're thinking about now, Christmas. The Christ event. If you didn't come and fleshed, then we wouldn't have a means of being at peace with the Father. Thank you for coming, Lord Jesus, to suffer and die on our behalf. You were enfleshed and therefore made yourself capable of death as a human to die for the rest of us as humans. Thank you, Lord Jesus, Prince of Peace, for enabling a far better relationship with yourself, with the Father. Holy, you're holy. And thank you for granting us not only peace, but an entirely new status. We're bond servants and we're saints. And our struggle is simply to live up to what's already true of us. Help us to do so during this season and all seasons. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, God bless you folks. We will not see you next week and even the week after. We'll see you sometime.